You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Oscar Munro had never thought he'd return to the very place where he died. Just to make matters worse, enterprising faraway natives had turned his last desperate hyperglide flight into a tourist attraction. Worse still, it was a failing attraction. The capsule from the spaceport bounced him over to Mount Herculaneum in a semi-ballistic lob that took 28 minutes. The last time he'd seen the colossal volcano was the day he died by crashing into its lower slopes. Today, his arrival was a lot more comfortable. The capsule shot him out of the upper atmosphere and followed the planet's curvature southwest. He watched through the sensors as the Grand Triad rose up out of the horizon. There were still the biggest mountains to be found on a habitable world. Herculaneum, the biggest, stood 32 kilometres high, its plateau summit rising high above faraway troposphere. Northwards, Mount Zeus topped out at 17 kilometres, while south of Herculaneum, Mount Titan reached 23 kilometres high. It was the only one of the triad to remain active. Oscar's capsule rode a tight curve above the grass-like seas of the Aldrin Plains before it began to sink back down again. The view was magnificent, with the vast cone of Herculaneum spread out below him, its plateau of grubby brown regolith broken by twin caldera. Around that, naked rock dripped down to the glacier ring far below, before the lower slopes were finally smothered in pine forests and low meadowland. Luckily for him, Titan was semi-active today. He looked down almost vertically into its glowing red crater, watching the slow-motion ripples spreading out across the huge lake of lava. Radiant white boulders spat upwards out of the inferno to traverse lazy arcs through the vacuum, spitting off orange sparks as they went. Some of them were flung far enough to clear the crater wall and begin their long fall to oblivion. His sight was inevitably drawn to the long funnel canyon between Zeus and Titan which led to the base of Herculaneum. Stakeout Canyon it was called, where the storm winds coming off the ocean were funneled into a screaming blast of air which the thrill-seekers of the early Commonwealth used to fly their hypergliders, allowing them to sail on winds so strong they'd push them out of the atmosphere and over Herculaneum. He'd never got to attempt that last part crashing his hyperglider into Anna so Wilson might stand a chance to reach the summit. Even though he'd braced himself for some emotional shockwave at seeing the sight of his death, he felt nothing more than a mild curiosity. That must mean I'm perfectly adjusted to this new life, right? As he looked along the rocky cleft in the ground, his exavision pulled up metrological data and a file telling him that the winds now were never as strong as they had been a thousand years ago. Terraforming had successfully calmed Faraway's atmosphere. Hypergliding was just a legend now. The capsule took him down to a big dome situated right on the eastern edge of Herculaneum's plateau, where the cliffs of Aphrodite's seat began their sheer eight-kilometre fall. Oscar stepped through the pressure curtains into the dome's main arena and paid his entrance fee. There were three low buildings inside, lined up behind Aphrodite's seat. He went over to the first, which the dome's net labelled Crash Site. A whole bunch of tourists were just exiting it, heading for the cafe next door, chattering away excitedly. They never registered him, which he found amusing. It wasn't as if his face was any different now. 
It was dark inside the building, with one wall open to the site of the dome above the cliffs. A narrow walkway was suspended three metres over the ground, with a pressure field below it, maintaining a vacuum over the actual regolith. There was also a stabiliser generator running to preserve the wreckage of the hyperglider. The once elegant fuselage was crunched up into the side of a rock outcrop, with the ply plastic wings bent and snapped. Oscar remembered how elegant those wings had been when fully extended and sighed regretfully. He walked slowly along the walkway until he was directly above the antique plane. His heart had slowed right down as he imagined his friend, Wilson, terrified and frantic as the craft skidded along the dusty plateau, completely out of control. The fate of an entire species dependent on the outcome and those cliffs rushing towards him. Oscar frowned at the sight. The hyperglider was actually upside down, which meant there had been an almighty flip at one point. He looked along the ground to the rim of Aphrodite's seat, where someone in an ancient pressure suit was sitting. It was a solido projection, Oscar realised, as he came to the end of the walkway. One of Wilson Kime, his head visible in a not terribly authentic bubble helmet. Rips in the pressure suit were crudely repaired with some kind of epoxy, leaking blood into the regolith. The solido Wilson stared out into the desolate mountain range to the east, where the snow-capped peaks diminished into the bright haze of the curving horizon. This was exactly what the real Wilson had seen, what so many people had died to give him, those which history knew and still more unknown. 1,200 years ago, this glorious panorama had provided the data to steer a giant storm into the Starflyer's ship, slaying the beast and liberating the Commonwealth. Today, here on that same spot, he could sit in the Save You View cafe next door and buy donuts named after himself. Peter F. Hamilton is the author of the Greg Mandel series, which includes Mind Star Rising, A Quantum Murder, and The Nano Flower, the Night's Dawn trilogy, which includes The Reality Dysfunction, The Neutronium Alchemist, and The Naked God. Pandora's Star and Judas Unchained, both set in the Commonwealth universe. His newest novel is the first in a trilogy. It's The Dreaming Void. It's also set in the Commonwealth universe. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you. Peter, I've got to ask, was the very first book you ever read a omnibus edition of The Lord of the Rings? <laughs> Um, I read it quite early on. One of my teachers had a, an early edition. I think it was the late 60s, wasn't it, that came out? Right. Um, I'd, I'd read The Hobbit, obviously, and then, then this thing came out, and that was an omnibus edition, yes. <laughs> I guess that gets us uh, closer to the, the length of some of your books. Were you always a science fiction and fantasy fan from the get-go as a, as a kid? Absolutely, yes. Um, I grew up and, and have gone back to live in uh, Rutland, which for those of you that don't know England, it's a very rural county, about 100 miles due north of London. Now, I grew up there in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, we had sort of three television channels which shut down at 10 o'clock at night, uh, there was one cinema with one screen. There was no computer games, no video, anything like that. And I found the local library, and in that library was the science fiction shelf. And that was the way that the, the teenage version of me got out of, of Rutland. Um, this was the, I read other stuff as well, but this was what kept drawing me back each time, was this, this ability through writers like uh, Heinlein, Asimov, Clark, all the classics. Um, that's how I got out of Rutland. Could you talk about 
some of your early experiences with some of these books? These are uh, American authors. Did you just pick them off the shelf, or did you? Were, was there somebody guiding you in your choices? Uh, no, there wasn't anybody. Um, th- this was this was all that was available at the time. Later on, when I was um, late teens at school, we had a little book. I'm not sure what you. I suppose today it would be a book group. We would we went down to the to the local bookshop uh, and bought whatever came in and then passed it around between us, sort of like a mini library book club, if you like. Um, and again, that we were all SF fans, uh, probably for the for the same reason, just to get away from where we were. Um, so that, that was quite a tightening group. So science fiction certainly predominated my reading at that time. I did read some fantasy. I'm not a huge fantasy reader. Um, I'm not a huge reader at all at the moment, unfortunately. Um, when you start to write, the time just vanishes. I always claim I'm I'm well read up until the mid '80s when I started <laughs> writing. Now. In the mid-'80s, there was a big boom in genre fiction, particularly in horror, and I think one of your earliest uh, publications that I saw was in a magazine called Fear, which is a big, glossy, beautiful magazine. That's right. Um, Sadly, no longer with us. But, yeah, that was the time I was writing a lot of short stories. It's a fairly traditional role for science fiction writers, um, starting off in short stories and gradually progressing... uh, through, how should we put this, the professionalism of magazines. You start off in very small press magazines, um, which aren't too discriminatory against who they employ. They're kind of desperate for work. Um, and through that, you, you get up to the, the glossier types like Fear magazine. And we had Interzone was a big influence to British science fiction in the late 80s and onwards. Um, so, yeah, I was doing short stories um, for those. And then late 80s, I I done enough and was confident enough of these of my writing skills by then to, to start doing a, a novel which was the Mind Star Rising book. Could you talk a little bit? What were you doing in, when you were writing these short stories? You were in college still or Oh no. Um I was one of those people who like I say, one thing writers have in common, whatever our, our educational backgrounds is, if you sit us down here we will all have, have been copious readers when we were younger. Um, after that, we tend to go off in various directions. I was one of the people who, I didn't do English so much at school. I was more interested in, in pursuing a science career. Um, although the, my that love of books was sort of always it puts in the background of your mind, I can do better than this, which you soon learn you can't when you when you pick up your typewriter. But anyway, so I had that thought. Uh, that thought was always there in my mind. Um, in the 80s, I went back home to to help my father look after my mother who was quite ill so I needed either to work from home or a job you know a block away so I, th- those sort of combinations of things uh, what what happened was I thought well this is the the chance if I'm ever going to do it it's going to be now so I, I literally one day at the age of 26 went out and bought a typewriter and that was what what story did you first publish and where were you first published? Oh goodness me. Um it was a very small press magazine. Uh I think it was called In Dreams, which I mean lasted about a year and a half. Uh, these these things the internet has taken over from these things. There's not so much small press around these days. Um but yes, I think it was In Dreams that published me first. And and I progressed up from from there to to more professional stuff. As you were writing these short stories, I, I believe the story in Fear is set in the um, 
Night's Dawn universe, if, if I'm not mistaken, or, or it has some tendrils that it's, grow towards that. It's, yeah, the, the story was reprinted in the, in the anthology um, A Second Chance at Eden right, right, and was altered by me so that the universe then was the Night's Dawn universe. It wasn't the Night's Dawn universe when I wrote it the first time around. Could you talk about it? You you'd made a bunch of written a bunch of short stories. Here you are. You're going to write your, your first novel, and and it's Greg Mandel. Now you seem to be a guy who's like uh, way ahead of his time. You walk to the walk to the grocery stores now, and or the bookstores. You cannot escape the shelves of novels about psychic detectives. But it's it's it's. I didn't know that. It's it's that prevalent now. There's there's actually been a little bit of a tradition in science fiction. I mean, Asimov wrote his Lige Bailey books. Um, bizarrely, Larry, Larry Niven's detective is called Hamilton. Uh, they came out in the seventies. Um, yes, as I was saying, I didn't just read science fiction. The other other big influence was detective detective fiction and thrillers and that kind of thing. Who did you read? Uh Remember, I was very young. It was Alistair MacLean. Um, so I would, I would read that kind of stuff. And it, it, it's actually a very, very good format for science fiction, um, a detective, because you can, you can take him down onto those mean streets and look at the underbelly of, of the future society that you've created, which is always a lot more interesting than looking from the top down. So it gave me, as, a, as an author, a chance to explore and explain away the, the kind of concepts and, of society that I'd developed for this, this world. And one thing I've noticed about your societies, no matter how far in the future you get, no matter how high the technology gets, humanity seems to manage to stay pretty low and have lots of <laughs> low levels. We, we we don't ever get much better, do we? Um, I think the proportion of humanity that, that sticks to the low level is getting smaller in my books. I mean, you, you take, um, you look back a thousand years and... You know, 99% of us were toiling in the fields while the Lord of the Manor, you know, lived off off the fruits of our labor. N- by the time we we get to a thousand, two thousand years in the future, I've I've sort of got that down to five percent, and and the the other 95% are having the good life. So we're getting there slowly in my books. Uh, what this is an interesting vision of humanity, and, and uh, in in the Mandel books, exploring that underbelly of society could, does give you a lot of fun. Could you talk about some of your influences in the the mystery genre that that informed some of those the way you would move through the lower levels of society? Um, oh no, we're stretching back the memory here. Um, I'm trying to think what else I did read in those days. I think some Ellery Queen stuff. Um, uh, we are talking nearly thirty years ago now. <sighs> You've, you've got me. I'd, I'd have to come back to you. I'd have to have a good look at the bookshelves and, and see what's there. But, uh, yeah, certainly some detective fiction. And, and your books also, one of the things I like about your futures, even though there's a lot of uh, high technology and society has changed often in fundamental ways, um, they, they seem to have a lot, they feel a lot like the present, the Oh, um, yes, quite deliberately so. Um, They are children of their time. Um, The Mandel books, for instance, was in the time uh, of Margaret Thatcher. Now, you probably don't know the opposition groups in England was was led by Neil Kinnock. Um, And it was 
it was very polarized. It was it was really quite unpleasant at the time. I mean, whichever ideology you believed in, whichever one you followed, um, it was getting quite extreme on both sides. Um, and that was, was reflected in the society that was set up on the books. If I was writing the Mandel books today, it would be um, pro and anti-Europe, rather left versus right. So I, I always take into account what, what I see going on around me to, to help with the building blocks of those societies that I'm doing. Um, you also lavish a lot of uh, care on your characters, and, and it makes them, that's one of the most enjoyable parts of your books. Is, it's in what makes a book is that if the writer likes his characters, and you seem to really like your characters, don't you? Absolutely. Even, even the evil ones are, are quite fun to write. Um, science fiction is always, it's always said that science fiction is the, the literature of ideas, which is quite true. Um, if you look at some of the, the stories that came out of the 40s and 50s and, and presumably 30s as well, um, it was you know the one idea, the one problem, and the, the characters were just sort of ciphers to solve this problem, and they were interesting, they were good. Today, we really need to tell our story through a human viewpoint. Um, unless, unless I can engage the reader, then, then the story is meaningless, um, and, and we do this through characters. We do it through interesting characters, and that... that I think is is the way to do things. Uh, once you finish the Mandel books, um, you, you've got a, a nice little series here. As a writer, did you, had your publisher said more Mandel? Oh, absolutely yes. Mandel Mandel sold sold quite well. Um, it, it wasn't sort of breaking any box office records, but it was it was doing quite nicely. And the publisher would have liked you know Mandel four, five, six, whatever. Two reasons I didn't want to do that. Um, firstly, it would he was a he was a detective, so it would have become sort of James Bondish. It becomes not um, is he going to get out of this situation? It's just a question of how. Now, how can be quite interesting, but it lacks tension, uh, which is a you know if you're trying to write a gritty detective thriller, um, that that element should be in there, um, and also. They were my first books, and I felt that if, if I'm to, to develop as a writer, I really must try to do something different. And going back to the, the question you asked earlier, the, you know, how did I start, what was I reading, so the, the stuff I read in the teenagers, one of the big influences was E. e. Doc Smith, the Lensman series. I see you smiling. You know that book. Um, it, was, it is classic, classic space opera, um, and I haven't read it since I was 14 because I know that horrifying old cynic that I am today it would just ruin every memory when you're 14 E. Doc Smith is is the king it, he's the bee's knees he I were, absolutely it, is I, I'm not going to I have such beautiful memories of, of, of reading him when I was younger and it, they, they seemed to be absolutely fabulous books I, I daren't read them anymore so um, I needed to do something different uh, I loved E. Doc Smith um, and not many people seem to be doing that kind of uh, space opera these days, uh, certainly not when I started writing in the early 90s. So that was, again, I was sort of channeled into doing this. It was, it was obviously what I should be doing next. As you set out to, to write the, the Night's Dawn trilogy, did you just start at page one and go, okay, or did you have to spend some time doing some underpinning? six to seven months of, of um, note-making and uh, character development and, and building up my universe. There are, as you said, there's, there's two kind of writers. There's ones like me that need copious notes and uh, 
plots all worked out and chapter outlines ready and waiting for me when I sit down in front of the computer. And there's some guys who can sit down at a blank screen and just start typing. Um, and, I, and I know a few of these ones, and they, they are quite envious of me, and I'm very envious of them. There is no there is no specific set way to write. It's whatever makes you comfortable. And uh, as we said, I need a lot of preparation. Where did you go when you were doing the preparation for these books? What were you looking at or researching? Um, I tend to keep my research... I mean, there's just so much going on in, in the science world these days that you cannot stay current on anything. Um, I will read it at, at a sort of a pop science level, if you like. Scientific American uh, in England, we have the New Scientists, a few journals. Nowadays, of course, the Internet access makes this quite a lot easier. But that's the kind of level I will, will read up on my science on. And then, of course, you, you, you see what's, what's current, uh, where's it, where has it has come from to where it is today. And the fun then comes in in extrapolating. Um, a lot of my books, you'll, you'll notice a recurring theme, some, some of the... Sometimes it's quite faint. Other times, such as um, Fallen Dragon, it's quite strong, is that various technologies have taken over the role of ideology when structuring society. Um, I, I, certainly in the, in the UK and in Europe, um, the politicians are all racing for the center ground these days. Um, you've got to appeal to everybody to get your vote, which is sort of... Um, shaving away the ideologies of the past to, to a degree. I mean, they're still there. They're still influencing people. But it's less of um, a driving force these days. Um, and technology is significantly shaping our, our society these days. I mean, mobile phones. If you watch a film from the early 80s and it hasn't got a mobile phone in it, you just sort of think, well, why don't they just call someone to get out of this situation? Uh, and then we have a good laugh at the mid-80s phones where you're carrying bricks around in your pockets. <laughs> Um, but but that I mean that's a very loose example. But but yeah, to me this is again one of the big fascinations of science fiction is seeing the the influence that, that technologies have. Uh, the other pole of your books, and I think this is uh, through through the Night's Dawn trilogy and certainly through the Confederate uh, books, is religion. Yeah, uh, although bizarrely, you... I'm not a terribly religious person. Um, religion interests me uh, in, in that it involves this huge belief system. Um, and it is not a substitute for, but it is an equivalent to an ideology. It is this, this whole belief, which has, has very much come to the fore in um, The Dreaming Void. I mean, this is a, a huge, the whole books, the whole trilogy is structured around this, this conflict of belief systems where people believe they are in the right and they should should do what their ideology, their belief tells them, and everyone else can just get lost. This is what we're going to do. Um, and there seems to be, to me, um, there is sort of no resolution to this in, in general life. It's, it's those who can keep the faith long enough win, I suppose. But it, again, this is a, is a huge driving force in our society today. It's not one we can ignore. And as I say, I like to build in what I see around me into societies. Well, what I find really interesting about the, the Dreaming Void and religion in your books in general is the what happens when this kind of hardcore faith doesn't reject technology but embraces it. Yes. Um, I was reading this morning about the, the visit of the, the Pope to this country and, and 
basically all the protest groups you can think of are getting ready to greet him. Um, the Catholic faith is interesting this, and it does seem to be... I mean, people condemn it for being medieval. It's not. It is It is progressing, but the, how should we say this? The rate of progress isn't keeping up with the rest of society. It seems to be... This is a, this is a personal viewpoint. Um, I mean, he's got a very difficult job, obviously, the Pope, but it does seem to be a quite... From the outside, it seems to be almost a restrictive um, religion at the moment. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's going to have to change, and and there are forces working to change within the church. But yeah, as I say, it, you you just can't ignore these these huge dominances on people's lives. We still in the in the Church of England, um, we are slowly separating church from state. But every time we get a um, an ethics group, say to to review. Um, they're, they're talking about at the moment doing a, a hybrid between human DNA and animal DNA. And the, the churches are certainly getting their say in that. Um, they, they are not ignored by the establishment. They're still there, still a big influence on, on life, even though the congregations are falling. Well, in, in the dreaming void... I think what's interesting is what happens when it, it's almost you you can imagine in our world what happens if say the Catholic Church embraces nuclear power <laughs> maybe that's a little uh, bit quite scary and you have that scenario in the dreaming void essentially to, uh, to a degree yes <laughs> um, well as I say it's it's you know don't take these books too seriously they are uh, a, 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 at a large level they are um, entertainment. Um, but again, it's it's a fabulous way to explore ideas. Yeah, um, you know that these these religions in in my book have modernized um, to quite a degree. They they're still in a, in a huge conflict with each other, which I I don't think is going to change. Human human nature uh, is is such that we will always be in conflict with each other. I believe. You, you know, it seems to me too that what you've done with your uh, literary oeuvre, is you kind of like to go through and combine genres with science fiction. All of your novels are clearly science fiction. There's no doubt about that. But each one seems to add a different other genre in. And I'm thinking of, in particular, I loved the horror elements in the Night's Dawn trilogy. Just superbly well done. And and that must have been, was that an out, uh, outpouring of the horror boom of the 80s? Um, I, I was never a huge horror reader. It, the, the Night's Drawn, when it came out, I was was quite rightly referred to as genre bending, which I, I love that description. It was it, yes, Night's Drawn was unashamedly a mix of science fiction and horror, um, or science fiction and supernatural, shall we say? I mean, there was, there are some some horribly violent bits in it, which people interpreted as as going down the horror route. I would say it was more um, science fiction and and, and spirituality. Uh, that kind of thing, the where are we? The the books that followed that, the Fallen Dragon one was science fiction, and and my my big theme of before how technology influences society and the politics of technology. This this sequence is the Dreaming Void, uh, and it's follow up the Temporal Void, and then the Evolutionary Void. Will be dealing, will be blending in a lot of fantasy elements, um, although it's not fantasy as in Tolkien fantasy. It's, it's more science fantasy, I would say. Half the book is science fantasy, which people have, have responded to very, very interestingly, um, saying, well, I didn't expect this in a Hamilton book, which is good, which is great. Keep people on their toes. Well, um, 
as one of the what I was thinking of is is the the Jack Vance books, the Dying Earth books, where you have that kind of the the science fantasy themes, and it's interesting that we know we're not in a fantasy world when we're doing this. Though you could have pulled this the the sub story out of uh, almost of uh, the Dreaming Void, it seems, and turn it into its own novel. Uh, funny you should say that. Um, I have plans after this trilogy is finished. Again, I want to do something different um, from a writing point of view. So I'm aiming at, and I hate the term, it sounds like marketing, uh, a young adult trilogy which will be based uh, around a fantasy which is very, very similar to the to the Void segments out of, out of this trilogy. Um, I'm doing that again. Well, again, we have two reasons for this. Uh, one, I've, I've just said I'd like to do something different. Secondly... Uh, I I now have two small children, and I'd like to... And they're not reading uh, anything like The Night's Dawn until they're, you know, 30-plus. This is X-rated stuff, as far as they're concerned. Um, so I want to, to be able to sort of meet them halfway. I want to write something that in a couple of years they can read and, and finally understand what Daddy does all day long in the shed at the bottom of the garden. Um, so, I'd, yeah, from that point of view, again, a change is good, and, and it's personally motivated as well. One of the the themes that we see scattered out throughout your books is extending people's lives. Um, this is the the um, explicit theme in, in, in misspent youth, and it, it occur, occurs again in the the, the Confederation, the Com- Commonwealth books. Commonwealth, yeah. and I I'm wondering why you're why this resurfaces for you and where your interest in this is? Um, because it seems to me that the whole point of medical research, genetic research, um, biochemical research is is in extending life expectancy. And there are billions upon billions upon billions of dollars and pounds and euros spent on this every year. Surely the, the end result of this is is extending our lives um, by improving health. We, we all know what we should eat, even though we don't these days. We know we should be out jogging and this kind of thing. Um, one of the huge problems that, that England has, which has this socialized health service, is that people are living longer and they are consuming more and more medical resources to do so. Um, and, and, you know, where are we heading for this? We We are desperately trying to extend our lives, but we haven't really thought about it. Um, if you're going to live for, for 200 years, that then means you're going to be doing 150 years of nine to five work. I mean, do you want to do that? Is <laughs> that is that was that part of the idea that the medical community has? I mean, these these things are. I mean, the science is going ahead, and that's fabulous. But what are the social implications? We're back to this again. What are the social implications of living for 200 years? Um, what kind of population pressure is that going to unleash? What if if women are fertile for 100 years? Uh, you know, the, the five five to ten marriages is commonplace. You, you, are you really going to spend 150 years with the same partner? Um, all these all these things are sort of um, on the horizon, if you like, depending on, on, on which brochure on medical research you believe. But this, this is all potentially possible. And, and quite frightening. <laughs> well, put like that, yes. Yeah. I mean, there is the fun side of it, too. But, yeah, I mean, the, these things have to be considered. And and as far as I'm aware, they're not, other than science fiction. Now, another one of the checkpoints, Peter Hamilton's ahead of the curve, was the uh, was a, a side part in uh, the misspent youth book 
about the publishing industry. Ah, yes. It's going through a meltdown. It's headed towards a meltdown. Right now, the music industry is, is pretty much like an ice cream cone that's been left out too long. But, the, I mean, we're, we're talking about copyright protection here, basically, is, is what this is. Um, the funny thing about the music industry is that they, the, the, some, of, uh, some of the people, a lot of the people are now thinking that um, all this illegal file, file sharing or whatever, I mean, it went on in the 70s. We'd share tapes of, of, of our vinyl albums. And it, it acts almost like free advertising. I mean, if you, if you hear something that a friend's got on his iPod, oh, I must get that. And and the vast majority would just just go to iTunes. I mean, yeah, somebody like me, middle aged, middle class, will go to iTunes and pay for it. Um, if you're a student and you have no money, then yeah, you'll probably get it from from somewhere that doesn't charge you. But when you get old, older, you'll you'll be going back to iTunes or whatever the equivalent is, and you'll be paying for the artist to do it. Um, you can download most of my books from illegal Russian sites as we speak. Um, they're out there. Um, it. It doesn't. I, it doesn't affect sales too much. Um, before I came, the, the interesting development will, will be uh, e-paper. Before I came over here last last week, I was desperately trying to finish the last book, uh, and, and just managed to finish it before I came here. So I spent Monday and Tuesday before I got on the plane, reading through uh, its two hundred thirty thousand words in two days on a screen, and the headache I had at the end of it just purely from eye strain and screen reading for that long. Um, I don't want to do that again. So I don't know how advanced e-paper is these days, but it, before you have a true revolution in, in, in uh, publishing and uh, e-commerce books, you're going to have to solve that. The hard end of the technology problem is going to have to be solved. Well, it's interesting to me to think about books as a 500-year-old technology that has not been surpassed. Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, I mean, the glues are probably different, but that's about <laughs> it. It, it. Could we talk about um, y- your newest book ha- has uh, some interesting thoughts a- about religion? And could you talk a little bit about how you design your religions? And how, when you're sitting down in your six to seven months, is that what you spent on this yeah. bit yeah. as well? About the same, yeah. Um, how do you go about designing your religions? Do you worry about uh, uh, a fatwa? Um, no, the religion that we're talking about in the in the Dreaming Void is is called Living Dream. I actually question if that is a religion in the strict sense of things. Um, it is in the center of the galaxy. There is this void, which um, is basically a huge other universe. And some humans have got in there and are living a very interesting life. This is the fantasy section of the book. Uh, they're living almost a medieval life, uh, but it's a very good one, and you get to find out why. It's so good by the end of, of volume two. Um, now, somebody outside has dreamt this life. There's a there's a dream connection between a guy inside and a guy outside. So everybody outside wants to get in. Now, that's a fairly uh, an allegory of, of religion, if you like, that there's this near parad- uh, paradise society that you can go to but you can physically go to it that's the difference faith is religion religion is faith this has um, a physical side to it uh, and that's where the real problem begins but yeah it's it's to all intents and purposes and i, I can see why you call it a religion it's 
religion, cult, political ideology, wish fulfillment movement, if you like. You know, it, it, there's a, there's a word that strikes me uh, when I read a lot of uh, Peter Hamilton books: wish fulfillment. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, deliberately so. I mean, I'm an optimist at heart. Was it um, pessimist in the short term, optimist for the long term? I think was that Clark said that Arthur C. Clark. Um, I would certainly sign up for that. I would admit to that. Well, um, tell us about some of the the wishes that you realize for example in misspent youth that's a that that's a, a fairly obvious example but we can start there that's a, an in, an incredibly obvious example this is this is about what we were talking about earlier the the culmination of, of all the the medical research um is uh, i think it's set in about 40 years time has finally matured to a point at which they can start rejuvenating people. And by very strange coincidence, the, the hero of the book um, who gets rejuvenated is exactly the same age as me. Um, when he's 70, he gets this, this rejuvenation back down to, to, to 21. Um, so I'm, I'm still hanging on in there hoping that, uh, that they'll pick me when this happens. Um, it's, it's actually one of my least favorite books um it was it was not badly received but people weren't quite expecting this from me i mean i've done the the detective thrillers the the um space opera the the standalones with um fallen dragon and this basically amounts to a character study and the characters aren't that pleasant in it but i i I stand by it to this day because I mean the, the, this guy Jeff he's he's 70 years old he gets rejuvenated down to 21 um and I think what what made a lot of people blink at this was the honesty I used in this I'm sorry but if if you're a 70 year old with a 70 year old's knowledge and he was quite wealthy as well and you're suddenly put in a 20 year old body there is only one thing you're going to do and that's girls um, and I'm sorry, but that is the way guys are. There is no getting away from this. I mean, there's there's more to the story than just that, but that is the way they will behave. I really do believe that. I mean, if you if you were if you were slammed back fifty years biologically, um, I mean, your hormones are going crazy for a start. Um, and as I say, you have the 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 experience. I mean. We always say, "Oh, if I only knew then what I know now." It's it's a it's an absolutely cliched phrase, and and this gives the the guy the chance to do this again. It's it's the restart. It's the fresh life that we all look for um, at, at some point in our lives. As a a, a writer of, of science fiction, you have to contend with the, the changing currents of the genre itself. And I think one thing you did particularly well in The Dreaming Void is to deal with that which threatens to suck the entire genre into itself, the singularity. The singularity, yes. The the point at which technology plateaus and, and makes our life incredibly easy or, or we go into Terminator world and it, and it just takes over. Um, it is dominating, uh, certainly literature at the moment, science fiction. It's a big, big theme in science fiction at the moment. Um, Again, I've made it sort of a flawed one because I'm. I think it will be if if it reflects if it's built by us, it's going to have flaws in it. Besides which, um, from a literary point of view, heaven is incredibly boring to write about. Um, there are no flaws. There's no conflict. What are you going to say about it? Um, 
I, I don't. I mean, it, yes, it's a current current trend. I mean, cyberpunk was the the late eighties, uh, well, mid eighties, late eighties. Um, space opera certainly seemed to have its uh, its go in the nineties, and and this is is this is current now. Um, as to the actual possibility of it, I don't know. We 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 will reach at some point a technology plateau. You can only cram so many circuits onto a microchip and we're not there yet but it's it's we can see where it's going to finish where you finish up with quantum wire where it is one uh, where you can conduct one electron at a time um and the same with biology physics biology botany whatever you want to call it it will reach a plateau now whether that plateau is below singularity level we don't know if if we cannot if it's not actually physically possible to reach the singularity we don't know as a, a writer uh designing your singularity did you look to other literary sources maybe outside the genre cuz i think that your characters tend to not seem so much like characters we you know encounter in, in science fiction no i i don't look um, around uh, around what other people are doing too much. I mean, I there is a pressure. Is that the right word? Um, I now know so many authors that I feel obliged to to sort of keep up with them uh, to some degree because they'll they'll turn up at conventions and ask me what did you think of, and I have to stumble for an answer. But um, I no, I'm not. I'm I'm not sort of checking out what the opposition are, are doing and going. Oh, I can do one better than that. That's that's not how I do it. I don't see fellow writers as as opposition for a start. Um, but it is funny that there's this sort of impression that the, there's the British Renaissance of science fiction. I tend to think it more as a sort of British coincidence of science fiction. Um, you got Heinlein and Asimov and and various others coming out of of the the forties and fifties. It tended to be, and I'm generalizing horribly here because of the Campbell years at, at uh, uh, which was the magazine, amazing, amazing, yeah. Amazing, yeah. who encouraged this this whole uh, plethora of writers to come forward. In the 80s, we had um, Interzone start in the UK, which encouraged people like me, Steve Baxter, Paul McCauley. Now, the thing is, we're all sort of, age-wise, we're all sort of within a few years of each other, and we had the same backgrounds. We watched Apollo landing on the moon. Um, we, we saw the start of calculators in, in when we were in our mid-teens. Um, we had Star Trek on the telly. Um, so we have this sort of shared background, and then we, we were encouraged to write at the same time. Therefore, whilst what we, what we write isn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not all space opera, it's not all detective fiction, it does seem to have similar themes in it. Therefore, it's it's been referred to as the British wave of science fiction. As I say, I don't think that is true. I think it's just coincidence and down to the magazines of the time. In America, science fiction dominates the movies. Science fiction movies and, and science fiction books are sadly very different. Um, I'm I'm always asked, you know, when are, when are they going to make the Night's Dawn into a film? And now Peter Jackson's done Lord of the Rings. Surely, it can't be long now. The thing with that is, if you if you go to a film and watch it very very analytically, it's a small story. Books and films are very very different mediums for telling um, stories in. Uh, there's, you always hear about the writer storming out of the premiere, going, "Well, that's not what I wrote in the book." Um, you have to accept that 
they cannot do uh, multi-plotted, multi-stranded um, films. I mean, possibly The Night Storm could make it as a, as a series. I mean, Battlestar Galactica and, and Babylon 5 worked quite well. Um, but films, filming something, uh, as I say, with just so many characters, so many plots, so many settings, as, as I tend to do, I don't think you're ever going to see that. At, at, when you're writing as a book, um, for example, you, you mentioned this earlier, you were afraid to talk about the y, your upcoming YA series because it sounds like marketing speak. Yeah. But a, as a writer, you have to think about that. I try not to. There's, um, I write for one person, and that's me. Um, the Dreaming Void is, is what I would like to go into the bookshop and find on the shelf and take home and read. I am very, very fortunate in that and a, a, a lot of people obviously share that particular taste. You cannot write by committee. You cannot think, oh, people will like that bit. I'll put that in because it'll sell more. That is, that is not the way to go about writing books. Um, as I say, so far I've been lucky in that people have, have liked what I've written. If, if the, the young adult book books are not what people like, then, then so be it. But I will, still, I will still get the same enjoyment writing them. Uh, when you mentioned that little bit, all I could think about was all the fantastic action scenes that I've read in your books through the years, and, and they just absolutely remain stuck in my mind, uh, the, the escape from on in the reality dysfunction from, from the jungle planet. It's, it's just phenomenal. The crowd scene in Misspent Youth, the, the scenes, in, there are several of them in uh, The Dreaming Void. Tell me about how you go about creating such a scene. Um, that's, that's almost where do you get your ideas from. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's just how I visualize these things. Um, when I'm writing, you know, chapter one is is always the hugely difficult one to write because I'm I'm still in my mind. I'm I'm setting things up, even though I've got all the notes. By the time I get, you know, sort of halfway through a book or towards the end of a book, I'm so familiar with the characters that that if I put the two of them in a in a room together, it's like I'm reporting it rather than making it up. Because I understand them so well. So if I, um, the, the Lalonde scene, which you mentioned, to take them off the planet, I know how the guys on the ground will be dealing with their problems. I know what Joshua will be doing up above trying to get back to help them. It just all sort of connects to me. Do you visualize this? Uh, I, we were talking about movies. Do you visualize these things as movies? I mean, um, Yeah, I can see the visual. I mean, the one great thing about the, the films today if I, if I ever do get the, the option contract signed is that what I've written about in a, in a visual text uh, can be filmed now there is nothing I can write that cannot be filmed um, thanks to you know industrial light and magic there's nothing that it's just for, purely from a plot point of view but to, to visual I mean artistically I can barely do stick men um, if you if you ask me to paint something, you know I can't do it. But I can visualize it in my head what what these things should look like. Well, there are some visualizations associated with your work. The the cover art of Jim Burns. I, that's been a really great kind of collaboration for you over the years, hasn't it? Absolutely. Jim and I are, are actually quite good friends these days. I I met him at the very first convention I went to, and we we sort of sat up at the bar for half the night. Um, Jim, I, the way this works is is that 
I will send him various scenes from the book because I'm inevitably I'm only halfway through the book when they want the the jacket to put together and the cover blurb and everything. Uh, so I'll send him some scenes that I think will make good visuals, and he goes through them and says yes that one will do. And then I get phone call after phone call of what does the the starship fin look like? Which way is it curved? What color is it? So I've got to have these answers ready for him when he phones, which which helps concentrate the mind to a, to a huge degree. Uh, at, you were talking uh, about finishing the last book now. Have you already finished the Dreaming Void trilogy? No, I've just done just done the second one. I finished the, the second one, which is The Temporal Void, last Tuesday and emailed it to the publishers and then hopped on a plane over here on the Wednesday. So, yeah, that is finished. Um, that will concentrate. There will be more of the fantasy element in that. And then book three, which is the evolutionary void, will we'll switch back to, to what's going on outside the void and the, the great scramble to, to, to get things right. We've been speaking with Peter F. Hamilton. His newest book is The Dreaming Void. Thank you for speaking with me, Peter. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.